Welcome to Total Convexity, a weekly financial podcast that caters to professional finance individuals, high net worth investors, family offices, and other sophisticated financial professionals. Join our hosts, hedge fund manager Jim Wang and Henrik Neohaus, as they explore the interconnected world of global macroeconomics, central banks, and capital markets. Comprehending the intricate web of global macroeconomics, central bank policies, and capital markets isn't just an option, it's a necessity. Whether you're a chief investment officer, financial analyst, entrepreneur, or simply someone curious about how the global economy and capital markets function, this podcast serves as your compass through the intricacies of the global financial landscape. In each episode, we will delve deep into the influential factors shaping our world, from global economic trends and central bank policies to capital markets and trading strategies. We will demystify financial jargon, clarify complex numerical data, and provide you with insights from experts in the field. Exit episode 10 is recorded on the 27th of February, 2024. I'm your host, Henrik Neuhaus. Joining me is my co-host, Jim Wang. I'm glad to return with the 10th installment of of our podcast series. Jim, at the end of last year, you laid out your forecast, or your outlook rather, for this year. Now, a few months have passed, and I thought it would be helpful to review what you said then, what your outlook was, and if there have been any updates. Jim, what do you think? Um, hello, everyone. I'm glad to return to the new episode. Uh, and yes, I think that would be a great idea. Um, to start, maybe you can refresh the memories for our audience and uh, what was our uh, outlook at the time. And then uh, we can start from there. Sure. Um, well, some of the... Uh... So concluding points from last time were, so in the very near term, you had expected risk markets to be supported into this first quarter. While you believed that interest rates had peaked, you expected interest rates to rebound into Q1 as a counter trend movement. However, in the intermediary term, you thought that we are inching towards the end of the current market cycle. And based on our indicators, a recession could be imminent. You also argued that if events unravel as we are expecting them to do, were and still are expecting them to do, we have probably already reached the terminal rate of the current hiking cycle. In this environment, you believe that US rates and treasury securities presented the best risk-reward trade-off. You also said that there is an elevated risk for equity to experience a significant drawdown this year, and that you expect the correlation between stocks and bonds to return to negative again. Typically, the US dollar rallies once the Fed pauses rate hikes. However, you do think that the US dollar is poised to rally during the risk-off environment. Finally, gold also typically rallies once the Fed stops hiking interest rates, but gold may suffer if there is liquidity squeeze in the financial markets. Given your recession outlook, you thought that there is more of a downside 
than of an upside for industrial commodities. But the geopolitical situation, which is tricky, can have a short-term impact on both gold and oil prices and, and other commodities. Here we are. February is almost over. Yes. Risk assets have been supported so far. Yes, interest rates are rebounding. And no, the recession is not yet here, at least not a broad-based one. Where do we go from here? Please give us an update on your views. Jim? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Henrik. So, yeah, I would be very happy to update the views. But before we start, um, I want to emphasize that, uh, you know, we focus on the kind of the drivers uh, for the uh, for each of the scenarios that we are describing, uh, and uh, our views will always change if the underlying drivers change, and uh, and to develop the uh, forward-looking views, we have to think about how those drivers can change, uh, and how they can manifest, um, you know, in the economy and also in the in the in the financial market. As you can see, some of our views were right, some of them were wrong. And it will always remain this way. And how you take advantage of the views and translate it into the trade uh, and the portfolio construction is another different, complete different, um, you know, uh, question. So here, um, and people always say that uh, history does not repeat itself, but it always runs. And uh, for us, we always want to understand the cause and effect. So what is the cause? And what is the result of that uh, of that drivers? So in this case, we talk about you know we always examine uh, the three way reaction functions between capital market, the real economy, uh, policymakers, right? And we examine that through the lines of market cycle, in the context of market structure, um, liquidity, right? And increasingly geopolitical you know plays a view in our framework. Um, and what do we mean by in a cause and effect. Um, we meant that market cycle is typically driven by the monetary policy and the fiscal policy, right? And obviously long-term economic prosperity is driven by the productivity growth. But from cyclical perspective, as you can see here, the, you know, the, the, uh, the monetary policy is really driving um, the, uh, the, the market cycle. And obviously physical policy have become an increasingly important part of this uh, mosaic. So in this chart, we shows the Fed fund rate, uh, which is a red line. And then uh, the pink line is our market cycle indicators. As you can see, once, uh, you know, as, as Fed uh, hiking interest rate uh, and the market side, we the market cycle indicator, but, you know, we're marching towards uh, the, the up uh, kind of up area, right? And uh, and uh, start to peter out. And once Fed pause interest rate and the cut interest rate, uh, actually, um, you know, the market cycle peak and they start to turn down. And if we look at the, this, and this is actually follow a normal cycle, right? The Fed hike interest rate curve, and typically, uh, you know, equity will drop, uh, driven more by adjustment of the PE multiple of the risk premium, as we have discussed before, not by the forward-looking earnings, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, this has happened again this time as well. It was dropping by the adjustment of the risk premium. Um, I would argue still very high, um, but it was not 
driven by uh, the earnings expectation. Um, and uh, then once the Fed were able to hike interest rate and the Fed paused interest rate, uh, I, I, and, and also around this time, you know, curve start to, um, you know, flatten, right? Uh, and go to inverted area, right? And once Fed paused uh, interest rate uh, hike, uh, and then start to cut the interest rate. And that's typically because of the economic, um, you know, kind of recession uh, and the curve re-steepen, right? And uh, then stock market have a second leg of decline driven by earnings, right? So that's kind of the cycle that always, you know, kind of repeat. Now, it's, it's easy to see when we look at this graph, but as you can see, the topping, you know, process sometimes can last for a few years, right? And navigating through this is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy task. But nonetheless, that's what we are trying to do. And uh, so what's different, you know, of this cycle is I think number one is because of the drastic kind of rise of interest rate, I think the, the stock market decline, you know, the stock market decline, the magnitude of the stock market decline was actually pretty large in reaction to uh, the the rising uh, risk of, in a rising uh, interest rate and the adjustment of the PE ratio, right? Um, and uh, and secondly, um, I would say you know because of the um, the uh, the the you know the speed and the magnitude of the rising interest rate uh, and uh, a lot of uh, you know market participants expect this kind of uh, you know the the um, the the peaking the you know kind of process of the cycle would be sooner and faster and uh, you can count us as one of them and obviously we follow the data and if you look at this chart it's basically this is the ISM manufacturing is the uh, the green line right and uh, the blue line is the leading indicator is the difference of uh, leading indicator miners um, the coincidental indicator, right? So if you look at the history, um, when you have, you know, the IS, ISM and uh, in such a deep, um, uh, you, know, for, you know, below zero, right? For such a long period of time and with this magnitude, uh, we would have already been recession. And if you look at the difference between the leading indicators and the coincidental indicators, right? Um, and this is actually comparable in 2008 uh, and the 2009. And obviously, there is a lot of other, you know, kind of uh, indicators we're watching, and I would say the vast majority of them, and uh, at a certain point, nearly all of them, were point, you know, with this that magnitude, with that kind of time duration. So we're talking about the magnitude of leading indicators and how long and how persist they have stayed um, in that area. Um, I would say history suggests is uh, the recession is almost a, a given, um, and obviously, you know. Like we said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. The question is, is this a beginning of a new cycle? Or is this an extension of the current market cycle? And if it is an extension, uh, when are we going to roll over to the downside? And, uh, and, uh, and how soon that will be? Um, I would say that's the question that we need to answer. Uh, judging from history, and judging, you know, if you look at our this, you know, market cycle indicators, right? And uh, we were towards 
to we were actually to the highest level that we have ever been. Uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, typically a new market cycle will start uh, once we have you know a recession, right? And the rising unemployment rate, uh, earnings decline, uh, and uh, then the you know the central banks coming to cut the interest rate, and there's a stimulus both on the physical and the monetary policy. Uh, and there was there was deleveraging, and then so then there was be uh, releveraging, uh, all this process, right? And we did not have any of this uh, any of this process, right? So so if you look at this chart, um, that uh, you know using our our framework, I would rather say here is that you know it's you know it's consistent towards the end of the market cycle, and the question is how long, and that can go. And when it's going to happen, and we are talking about, you know, can be imminent or can be uh, in the next one to two years, right? But that question is too broad. I mean, there is the, you you got to have a couple of things to follow. And I want to say towards the end of last year, all the indicators are pointing to towards a possible pretty imminent recession. And the only thing that we're watching here is really the unemployment rate. So for the we're waiting for the you know employment. Uh, basically, to turn to the to the downside, uh, or the unemployment to turn to the upside, and we haven't seen that yet, and we were still looking for that, and uh, you know we are open-minded towards either way. Um, but uh, so this chart is showing the uh, you know employment unemployment rate uh, and versus the six months moving average, and as you can see, every time when they climb above um, you know the six moving average, and the recession follows. And, uh, you know, if you look at this, we already climb above that. And obviously, you know, the if you look at the, you know, the past non-farm payroll, uh, it appears to be pretty, you know, um, you know, the, the, the labor market is very resilient, right? Um, and what also makes this uh, kind of cycle is very unusual is there is this large divergence between, you know, GDPs and a GDI. Um, and they should be the same because it's just, you know, income and expenditure of uh, of two parts of the balance sheet, right? Um, but you have a large divergency and the GDI indicating recession and the GDP indicating expansion. Um, and similarly, in the employment, you know, non-farm payroll was pretty resilient. And if you look at a household survey and uh, uh, and a private uh, survey, such a, you know, and a private data, such as ADPs, and we just show a deterioration. Uh, and... Um, um, I would say most of the states in the U.S. and by the way, the large states, they all show the large, they all show the increase of unemployment rate, uh, and uh, and typically they uh, that's coincided with the recession, uh, and um, um, and also you know I think recently the retail sale uh, is a pretty um, you know the retail sales and uh, was not as strong as people were expecting. Uh, and then also there's a the large kind of uh, divergence between, you know, small business sentiment and, uh, and investor sentiment. Obviously, investor sentiments are very buoyant and typically they are very similar, right? But if you look at the, you know, small business sentiment and they're very depressed. Uh, and, um, and we can debate a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, and I think one of them is the inflation, right? They typically impact negatively. Uh, on the people's, you know, kind of a small business sentiment. Uh, and the investors, obviously, were buoyed by the asset prices. Um, and I think, you know, we think all these puzzles 
right? You know, uh, deciphering the economic fundamentals and just one part of the variables for the financial asset. And we also talk about the predominant uh, kind of drivers for the financial asset is actually on the liquidity, um, which we have talked uh, in, the, in, 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 the, in the past. So how do we put everything, you know, this together? And I would say we are really kind of data-driven and we look at the cause and effects, right? So from the monetary policy perspective, we would say is pretty, um, you know, it's, it's, it's restrictive in a sense uh, that, uh, um, you know, it's the, you know the, the borrowing cost is high. So that reflected for the small business, you know, the borrowing uh, and the credit card, you know, borrowing for the, for the you know, the increasing delinquency uh, for the, uh, for the uh, um, you know, for the average, you know, consumers. So I would say, you know, the, 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 the monetary policy is, in, is, is pretty tight from the credit channel perspective, right? So the monetary policy, they, they work through different channels. There is a you know, financial condition channel and there is a credit channel, right? So the credit channel basically allow people whether to borrow uh, money to for spend, right? So from this perspective, um, I would say it's very restrictive because you saw, you know, the, the mortgage lending is, uh, is collapsing. Um, you saw the credit card delinquency was rising, right? And you saw the small business lending was falling. You saw the, the lending standards was tightening. And you saw, um, and you see the, um, the, uh, the you know, the, the, the loan demand was falling, right? Um, but, and the other channel is basically the financial condition. As we all see, the credit spread is record low. The stock market is all-time high. So, uh, and that is the uh, easy financial conditions, and that impact um, a portion of a smaller portion of the populations where they own the financial asset. And finally, what impact is spending is, you know, is 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 uh, is unemployment, is employment, right? So as long as people have a job, they will they will spend, um, and. Uh, so we are following all these factors, right? I would say from the monetary policy perspective, it's restrictive, um, and uh, the financial conditions, right? The, the, the financial financial conditions are actually relatively easy because of the rising, um, you know, you know, financial, uh, you know, uh, prices. So, so that's the mix of the of the picture here. And I would say physical uh, kind of stimulus was supporting the market, and we saw, uh, we see. The physical, you know, kind of stimulus will um, are, are waning, uh, and so if you look at that, uh, I would say, you know, still there's more headwinds than than than, than tailwinds, right? Uh, and uh, the monetary policy work with a long and a very good lag. So the more you stay restrictive, the probability of um, of the recession increases. Um, and uh, however, at the on the other side, we do see some of uh, our leading indicators are showing that uh, potentially there is actually a cyclical upturn uh, right here. Uh, and, um, you know, I just show one of the example here is the South Korea semiconductor um, export. If you look at here, it's very robust in the increase. And that's typically leading the ISM and, the, and which also, uh, you know, ISM lead uh, the, uh, the economic activities. And... Uh, um, you know, one, one nuance is I want to read into this is because of the semiconductor wars between uh, U.S. and China. Uh, and I think China was a stockpiling of the semiconductors. And I do not know how big in, impact 
um, that would you know have impact on this. And the other one is you know uh, is the new order to inventory ratio. We see that has been picking up. Uh, and uh, would that result in uh, kind of a turn of ISM? Uh, we see some of ISM in the manufacturing and the servicing, they were stabilizing and they start to turn higher, uh, although from, from low level. And that actually will, will argue for uh, kind of a, a time period of a cyclical upturn. So I, I would say that may happen uh, and uh, we just need to follow the underlying data and to see how uh, things will change. So how would I conclude this? You know, I've talked a lot, uh, you know, basically uh, almost like talking one hand and the other hand, right? And uh, the, 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 the matter of the truth is, um, is, is that was the data picture that's presented in front of us. So I would say, you know, the bigger picture that we are at the end of the market cycle remaining to be our base case, and uh, and I think it's highly unlikely. Um, you can argue. I mean, there's no there, for us. There is no such a thing to argue that this is a start of a new cycle. Okay. So the question is really how long this cycle can persist. And to answer that question, we really need to look at on the underlying data, and that we will happy uh, to provide the update as we can go. Um, I would say a lot of people say, you know, we're comparing current time period uh, versus 1995, right? So that's kind of a soft landing uh, scenarios. So if you look at the chart here, uh, you know, in 1995, the market cycle is really just starting, uh, you know, in market cycle indicators, right? So, and 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 we can just look at the, the, the you know, the, the, the macro environment that we have, with, you know, versus at the time. Um, and uh, the leverage ratio is a lot higher than, than during that time, you know, both for the government, you know, leverage, corporate leverage, consumer leverage, right? Uh, and uh, unemployment rate um, in 1995 was a lot higher, so there is a room to come down, and our unemployment right now is at a record low. So the further expansion, you know, looks like very stretched. Um, and... Uh, you had uh, basically uh, the peace dividends of the Berlin Wall, you know, fell, um, and uh, you know, you know, Chinese economy, you know, reopened, and Eastern Europe and Russia, you know, Eastern Europe, you know, kind of labor force become very productive, um, and uh, and all those things, and uh, obviously people compare with the you know productivity gain uh, for the internet during that time versus AI, uh, which we can have a separate discussion. Uh, and uh, but if you look at valuations, you look at uh, the invest. You you look at the valuations. You look at uh, you know our market. You know various market indicators, and uh, you can see it's rather more comparable to 1998 to 1999. You know to 2000, right? And the question is, you know, whether you are in 1998, 1999, 2000. And I think to answer that questions. Will have a dramatic impact on the on on, on on how you think how far this equity market can go, uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and to come back that I think you know you cannot only just look at uh, you know the economy, uh, you can you also have to look at the market positioning, look at the liquidities, uh, and obviously the economy will will evolve, and uh, we will just follow our process, and for now. We think there is a possibility of extension uh, of the market cycle 
for how, how long, we do not know. We have to monitor what is coming data. And uh, then we have more informed uh, uh, kind of views. Uh, I think we will, I will stop here. I'm not quite sure if I'll make it clear to you, Eric. Well, th th that was a comprehensive overview, thank you. So um, now, what, what kind of particular risks do you see out there that would make you change your mind to, to everything that you just told us? And in particular, I would like to hear your thoughts on the possibility that inflation could prove way more sticky than most of us thought at the end of last year. Jim? Um, yeah. So like I mentioned, I think the risk is, I, you know, I think that, I think we're pretty confident. And I think is this is the dynamic of late and end of market cycle dynamics. The question is how this market can extend, right? How much this market, you know, kind of a cycle can extend. As we know, the our market is very highly financialized, right? So the financial, you know, the, the, the higher stock prices and uh, actually do have feedback loop uh, back uh, to the economy. And on the other hand, um, that uh, as I mentioned, the monetary policy was restrictive and the fiscal, you know, kind of a policy are winning. So if you balance these things together, I would say how long this cycle can be extended is really will depend on how sustainable is the stock market. And secondly, is how the monetary policies, are, you know, you know, you know, kind of how the um, how the uh, the you know the monetary policy and the fiscal policy become stimulated again. Um, from that perspective, we do not think um, that uh, that the Fed will proactively to ease the monetary policy. Um, they may cut the interest rate, but that is hard uh, to see that they will cut aggressively to stimulate the economy with the maximum you know employment. Um, and uh, and also before election, we do not see a big, large physical uh, stimulus coming. Um, and if these things change, then then we change. Uh, and uh, and I think the final list risk is really the election risk. Um, and uh, we have talked about this: is that in the new world that we're going to see in the very long run, our view here is we will have increasing large physical stim physical uh, stimulus. And because that level is so high and the interest rate cannot go too high, and once they threaten the stability, it will be monetized. So I think that's the regime that we are, we are seeing in the very long run. Uh, however, you have to navigate through this. Uh, there's ebbs and flows of this. So, um, you know, I would say here is that if Trump get elected, uh, and I would uh, think there will be large, much larger physical stimulus coming, uh, and he certainly will ask the Fed to, you know, keep interest rate low, to cut interest rate. Uh, and uh, and if the interest rate go higher, he, you know, the way for the Fed to keep the interest rate low is to buy the bond. So, aka, uh, return of QE. So, I think those are inevitable. However, if the if the Trump is, you know, kind of uh, elected, and if the prospect of him being elected, um, I think the market may discount that sooner. So how soon, how fast, I do not know. And uh, and I do think that the election risk is uh, is a big risk. Uh, and uh, so those are the things that I think it will impact, um, you know, our our thinkings in terms of the timings, uh, and uh, you know, kind of uh, 
kind of a more shorter term, uh, you know, cyclical upswing and a downswing that we are facing. But probably will not derail the long-term picture of the market cycle, cycle view. Okay, got it. So in, in the past, well, you, you always like to mention liquidity and, and how liquidity impacts the asset markets. So what is the current status of the liquidity situation? Yeah. And where do we go from there? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. I think, you know, liquidity is such an over, overused term, right? So I, I do not, like, like we talk about this, there's no magic kind of indicators and the bullet says, you know, this is the liquidity. And uh, we have talked about this for the financial asset. Uh, we talk about different kind of indicators, right? So one is we talk about uh, the M2 growth relative uh, to the real uh, economy, uh, to, to the nominal uh, economic growth. Uh, and uh, and as a percentage of the market cap, right, to measure the impact. So that's one thing we're looking at. And then liquidity can also just create it out of thin air. Um, you know, we're talking about the financial asset, right? If the volatility fall, and then the investors or market participants just lever up, uh, bad asset. Uh, and uh, and uh, and I think in the post recession, you know, world, you know, central bank uh, policy. Uh, have uh, have a significant impact in terms of the liquidity. So that's we can talk about that right now. Um, so in this in this uh, so in this is a uh, in uh, I'm showing this about Bloomberg screen with you, Henry. You can see it, right? My Bloomberg screen. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, sure. So on the top here, there's a white line. This is basically the bank reserve, right? Um, and then the blue line is the uh, is the uh, is the small cap, right? And then the orange line is the um, is the um, balance sheet, uh, Fed balance sheet. So we know Fed, you know, started the QT right um, in uh, 2022, Q1 2022. So you can see the balance sheet has been declining. It has temporarily increased um, after the um, you know uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, kind of a regional banking crisis um, in uh, March. Uh, 2023, but generally speaking, you know, balance sheet has been declining. However, if you look at the blue lines, right, um, you know, the you know, if you look at the white lines, right, um, you see actually the, the the bank reserve, which is the bank reserve, and it actually has been increasing. And and the reason for that is basically the bank reserve is the liability side of the the balance sheet, right, um, and uh, um, and we, you need to understand the other liability component of how they have been doing in order to understand how this bank reserve will, you know, will shrink or will increase. So the the the, the blue line is the um, is the um, small cap index. As you can see, actually there is a pretty big, pretty um, kind of a, a good fit between you know small cap uh, you know performance versus the um, you know Fed. Um, you know, the bank reserve. Um, and uh, so so I, I think, you know, we look at this, we, we, we can see, oh, okay, we see the bank reserve has been increasing, uh, even though there is a QT, the, 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 the balance sheet of the federal, you know, reserve has been declining, uh, which is just, you know, just looking back, right? So for us, we have to look forward. Um, you know, to look forward, um, I would say here is this, is that, Based on the current forecast, right, the QT will continue, right, uh, and uh, uh, and that is negative for the liquidity, 
right? But at a certain point, the Fed also indicated that they may pause, um, you know, kind of taper the Q QT, and that, that will become, um, you know, the headwind that, that headwind will go away. So we have to monitor that. And the other thing that we have to monitor is this reverse repo uh, facility, which is on the liability side of the Fed balance sheet, right? So if the reverse repo, as we as we have talked about in 2023, um, the reverse repo basically dropped from you know to you know close to um, you know 2.25 trillion, right, all the way down to half trillion, right, and that's a significant injection of liquidity uh, into the market. And uh, I think in our last update, we forecasted that, that towards the end of March, maybe this will run uh, to close to zero. Um, and I think that, um, you know, in the, in, under the current pace, we probably will come down, uh, you know, pretty lower level into, you know, in, um, in by March or April. And I think the other uncertainty here is this, is that, um, you know, if the, if the curve start to, um, you know, flatten out because the market anticipated that to hike. So the overnight reverse repo, you know, um, you know, re reverse repo rate may be higher um, than the term, you know, kind of the, the treasury T-bills. Um, in this case, you know, um, this may go higher and uh, and that will be the liquidity headwind. So that's something that, uh, that we have to monitor. And finally, uh, if you look at the another side of the treasury, like you know, the Fed liability account is basically the TGA. So you, you, you we can see here, you know, the treasury have built up, you know, close to 800 billion uh, TGA account. Um, now, if Yellen decide to spending down to spend down this 800 billion, okay, the treasury, you know, account without is you know, based you know, just just spending down this TGA, that in that that is a positive for. Uh, the liquidity. So, so what I'm trying to say here is that there is a various factors to impact the liquidity outlook. One is QT that impact the balance sheet, and then the other is basically the treasury general account and also reverse repo that impact uh, the liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And finally, um, then we have a record in you know kind of a supply uh, of uh, of a treasury. And uh, and based on the most recent uh, kind of uh, most release of the QRAs, um, the the duration you know impact is um, you know was not as as large as people were you know feared. Um, so if you put all this together, um, I would say here is that um, you know once the reverse repo declined to a certain level at a very low level, or if it is rebound from here, and if the QD continue. Uh, that is a tightening for the liquidity conditions. Um, but we, but there are so many moving puzzles, you know, right here. Uh, I think we just have to uh, monitor the situation closely. Uh, for now, I think the liquidity continue to be supportive, um, you know, in the, in the very near future. When I say very near future, we're talking about like one month, two months type of a horizon. Okay, well, thank you. This was a great overview. So. If we tie all this together, what's your near-term outlook for different asset classes? All right. So, you know, first of all, we talk about the um, the interest rate, right? So I think we have shown that, uh, I mean, this is a very long-term, kind of a 10-year, uh, you know, kind of a, a interest rate chart. 
And we have to talk about this in a different horizon. And I would say in uh, 2020, um, you know, towards the end of 2020, we we think that we have reached the secular low of the interest rate and that we are poised to for a secular kind of bear market for, for bond. So, so I think in a very long run, we are structurally bearish on, on, on bond. Um, but from cyclical perspective, we are very bullish on bond. So I think we have to, um, you know, kind of separate that kind of the views. And the reason we are simple cyclical perspective we are bullish on bond is that um, is, 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 is really based on our forward-looking views of uh, kind of how the, you know, the growth and uh, the growth picture and the inflation picture. Um, we think overall, generally speaking, you know, kind of, a, you know, kind of, a, um, you know, we're still in the, in the late stage of the market psychodynamics. Um, and I think if the Fed, um, you know, just cut interest rate back to neutral, um, and um, you know that we're talking, we we are we're talking about like two two and a half percent of the Fed fund rate, um, and then the market is a price, um, the Fed fund rate, um, to you know goes down to all the way to, uh, let's see, uh, we can have one chart here, um, you know to three and a half percent, right? So from that perspective, I think there will be a lot of more room. Um, you know, for for the bond to rally, and not to not to argue, and not not to mention that you are able to collect, um, you know, you know, four point three percent of the um, you know kind of the coupons, right, without taking uh, the equity risk, and uh, and if there's a recession, and I think this can go really well, and if you compare, we also have the um, you know look at the risk premium of the equity market. Um, is basically, um, you know, um, you know, record kind of low equity risk premium. Um, so, and then the credit spread is very low. So you, you you compare across all the different asset classes. I think from the risk reward perspective, from the longer term, uh, I think the interest rate is the um, um, present a better investment opportunities. Um, and uh, from short term, we, we we talk about the you know the interest rate probably have a peak. And then we have a rebound, and uh, can can it go up to you know go up a little bit more? I think yeah, it certainly can. But I think we are rebounding to our, our levels where I think that increasing positions or if you don't have positions, you know, buy into that uh, can be a good idea. Um, and um, and then the other one that we talk, you know, the other one that I mentioned here uh, is really the um, uh, the curve. So. So if we look at the um, the interest rate curve, um, we are as the steepest. We, we are as the most inverted level for um, for very long, you know, period of time. So so we think that uh, that this curve is poised uh, to steepen uh, from here. So I can see here. You know, this is a uh, this is a two and tens, you know, treasury curve, and uh, um, we are the most inverted basically in the past, you know, forty years. And the only time that uh, we were more inverted it was during the nineteen seventies high inflation environment, uh, right? And uh, we have stayed in this, you know, in this inverted area for a long period of time. So I think the 
um, I think the risk reward favors the curve to steepen. And two scenarios that, uh, that the curve can steepen, right? One is that uh, if we have recession and the Fed cut interest rate and the led by, you know, falling of the front rate. Uh, the other one is uh, if, you know, if, uh, if inflation pick up and the Fed think that is temporary uh, and, uh, and the, you know, and the refuse to increase um, the policy rate, uh, and you can also see you know, the curve steepen. I would say the first scenario is probably more more likely, right? And then and then we can talk about stocks. Uh, I would say I would say here is that um, you know the AIs, you know, and also the you know the, the technology, you know, kind of like a rally driven by AIs and all this. Um, that is not a that is not a kind of a this uh, discussion that 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 uh, um, that, uh, that is predicated upon the economic discussion, right? That is have a lot to do with the liquidity per se, and also um, the, the market positioning. Obviously, valuation is a is a yardstick uh, in the very long run, but in the short run, it does not really matters. Uh, and uh, so, from that perspective, um, then we see that um, that because we think the liquidity. Uh, you know, conditions can continue to be uh, supportive uh, in the near term. So I think the equity market can continue to be supportive. At the same time, I think if you look at the market, you know, various um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of quantitative method we're looking at is that at the short term is actually close to the exhausting point. It's poised to go down. However, I think in the market euphoria, right, you know, the uh, the sentiment can remain larger um, and it can overthrow a lot of the quantitative indicators that we have. So what we see here is is very difficult to handicap uh, handicap um, the exact path of uh, kind of the the uh, the bubble, um, you know, kind of stocks how they, how they, how they can perform, how they can behave, how, how they you know how how they can you know how they can go from right from here. Um, what we can see here is that there is a risk of a parabolic further parabolic rise. Uh, of that, and uh, but from the you know typical our quantitative measures, uh, and uh, it's close to the exhaustion point. Now, it looks like it's very difficult to take actions on that, right? And um, uh, and if you think so, and uh, we would agree, <laughs> but we do see that if a cyclical you know pictures we were mentioning that were improving, then we will see some of the you know, kind of cyclical, um, you know, sectors, and uh, even the commodity producers uh, may pick up. And I think internationally, uh, international stocks may uh, like, you know, kind of uh, in the non-US stocks, particularly emerging market can pick up. And I think, you know, later on we can talk about, you know, Chinese equity, which is a you know, biggest com big component of emerging market. Uh, and we were actually, you know, positive as we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the, of the year. So that take that will take take care of the uh, the the, the uh, kind of the stock side, and then from the currency perspective. Um, so I have here I have a dollar index. Um, as we have discussed in the in the past, and typically U.S. dollar will you know will rise uh, if in the in the tightening cycle, and typically they rise in anticipation of the Fed tightening, and that's the first leg of you know, kind of a, a rising of the U.S. dollar. And then once that uh, that is priced in, the U.S. dollar will fall. Um, and uh, 
uh, anticipating the peak of a hike hiking, right? Uh, and um, and obviously we are looking at the monetary divergence between the U.S. and the, and the rest of the market, and uh, and um, and we are focusing on the on the U.S. lag, right? And then if there is a risk off, and then we have a final leg of U.S. dollar rally driven by kind of risk off, and uh, you know it will go high from here. So I think in the situation we are having here is that if we do have an extension of the current market, and probably that will be driven by easing financial condition. And if there is easing financial conditions, that will argue for lower, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, US dollars. Uh, so the US dollar can uh, can go below, um, you know, kind of this white line that I show here, one on one. Um, and if we do have risk of scenarios, right? And I think the you know U.S. dollar probably will rally from here. And in uh, um, for at this particular moment of time, we do not have a strong views of one way or another. Um, but we do have some views in terms of some of the because we are constructive about the Chinese economies, and I think some of the countries whose economy is levered to Chinese economy may see their currency to appreciate. Um, so they're currently appreciated and also, um, you know, the risk asset to appreciate as well. Uh, so that's kind of uh, um, our take at this particular moment of time. Okay, Jim, thanks for that. Um, very interesting. And, and, and a bit of a contrarian take on the markets. Now, talking about contrarian, and, and this is something that you just mentioned. Um, I think that a couple of months ago, you were quite positive on, on Chinese equities. Now, Given the recent rapid decline of Chinese uh, of the Chinese stock market, combined with the recent policy by the government, have your views changed? Uh, and also, if China embarks on massive stimulus packages or st stimulus actions, would this mean that China bails out the global economy again, just like it did after the global financial crisis? Uh, what do you think? Uh, okay. So, okay, about China. Yes. So talking about contrarian, um, I would say, you know, if you look around the, you know, kind of the narrative, the consensus the narrative right now is one is the interest rate go higher for longer. And the other is China uninvestable, right? And, uh, um, and all, you know, I, I think the third one is the basically is the uh, the Chinese, you know, U.S. exceptionalism driven by technology AI, um, and I think these are probably the most consensus uh, kind of views, and we are exactly opposite of that, not because we are seeking contrary, but rather uh, we are looking at we are following our framework, and our framework is telling us that. The, we, you know, with long and variable lead, actually the U.S. economy is poised to slow down and weaken and with a, high, with a probability of a recession. At the same time, the physical stimulus and the, money, you know, the, 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 the monetary uh, the policies in China actually will start to uh, have an impact on the Chinese you know, growth you know, from the very short-term cyclical uh, perspective. Um, and uh, um, as you see, you know, our... Our you know, we focus on cause and effect, right? And the, the measures, you know, you know, on which is basically composed of a physical policy and a monetary policy. So China has been, you know, kind of the interest rate is is at a very low level, 
and they were cutting the interest rate um, and they were easing. I mean, the the the, the housing bubble uh, is the burst of a housing bubble is a self inflicted wound, uh, which actually is a good thing they do it because it's uh, you know it's you know things will get worse if they let let the bubble grow bigger, right? But if you let the bubble burst um, and uh, you know you manage that process, it's actually it's actually is the is a positive thing, and uh, um, and 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 the. Um, and and then I think the uh, you know but then I think the uh, they're trying to support um, the, the 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 stock market right the financial you know the financial asset so so I would say you know from uh, from that perspective I think uh, you know from the cyclical short you know kind of six to months kind of uh, views we actually think the the probability is high for a strong rebound on Chinese you know kind of uh, uh, asset. Now we talk about the valuation is not a timing tool, but uh, but it does give you kind of a, um, a yardstick of what you are buying, right? So the Chinese PE ratio is is seven times, right? Chinese stocks and the US PE ratio is thirty seven times. Uh, you can always think about that as a you know kind of a long term call options without kind of a third of decay, right? So um, so I think we. We remain uh, constructive in Chinese Chinese stocks, and uh, we actually think that uh, that from short term um, um, that uh, that the countries who have, who is levered uh, into the Chinese economic development uh, may benefit from that. Okay. Now, yes. So, I think most investors agree with you about the valuations in China and the potential for an economically driven rebound, but there are the political risks, the political events that have caused a number of international investors to to proclaim that China is uninvestable. What, what, what do you think? Um, yes, I think that they were so cheap. It's, you know, that's the that's exactly the reason why the Chinese asset is so cheap. Right. So everything comes with a price. Uh, and uh, and I think the Chinese asset become investable as soon as everyone agree is uninvestable. Uh, and uh, and I think it's it's really you know question how much the financial asset is discounted for various scenarios. You know for the for the for the for the economic slowdown in China and uh, also the geopolitical situations. Um, and I would also actually agree that there will be permanent discount of Chinese asset in terms of the multiples versus the um, versus the rest of the you know versus the U.S. Um, and the other you know DM countries probably. But uh, but the discount is large and deep enough uh, from the margin of safety perspective. I think that's the first point. The second point here is that discount can narrow and can widen. And the question here is that you need to uh, understand what will cause that discount to, to increase and widen. And I, we just talked about from physical and monetary policy, but domestic physical and monetary policy perspective, um, that is supportive for the Chinese asset uh, from shorter term. Now, from geopolitical um, you know, standpoint of view, we have to look at how that is changing. Uh, and we have talked about in the very long run, the 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 strategic the rivalry right 
between the U.S. and China is a strategic, okay, and uh, and their economy will continue to decouple, right? Uh, however, we also do not think that they um, they will escalate into military conflict. I think they will manage this process to prevent acute negative economic consequences, right? And they will try to avoid direct military confrontation. So I think you can take that tail event pretty much out of the table. Uh, and uh, um, but but the rivalry will will continue. So so I think in this case um, we have to see you know um, how the things will will evolve in the near future. And what what we can see here is that from the you know we can see that the U.S. and China actually were trying to improve the relationship in the, in the past few months, and will likely continue to do so. And I think the biggest factor of this, you know, both of the both sides have the desire, and I think that uh, the, the the biggest factor is the U.S. election. Um, as you can see here, is the uh, the President Biden uh, probably will you know will, will want to avoid uh, anything that can derail. On the election, so so you can see here in you know even you know in the in the in the in the Middle East, right, and the, even Iran, even the Houthis were were striking the U.S. navies, right, and uh, and Iran was behind uh, behind the uh, the you know was the support uh, was behind you know was the was behind that, and uh, and the U.S. public sayings you know kind of uh, declare that uh, that they do not want to seek uh, escalation of the conflict. Uh, because they do not want oil prices to go high, and um, and uh, and I think you can safely say that Biden does not want to escalate the you know the uh, um, you know kind of the tension with China. I think that the um, um, the I think the you know this all started with the government news and visit to, to to China, right? So I think that's probably is the turning point. Uh, for the you know from short term perspective for the U.S. and China uh, you know kind of relationship to to improve, and uh, I would say it's probably safe to say before the election, uh, the risk for the kind of a, you know escalation of the U.S. and China kind of tension is very low. So so that's my kind of a geopolitical you know kind of a take in the very short term, right? Uh, and I think if you put all these you know kind of puzzles together. Um, and I think you know it argue um, for you know um, for the um, uh, for the upside for the for the Chinese asset. However, we do think that uh, in the long run, right, there is a secular you know kind of a challenges for Chinese economy, uh, as we have mentioned that uh, that we have been bearish on Chinese economy a long time ago, uh, really because of the housing bubble, aging demographics, and. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and the strategic kind of a containment effort from, uh, from the U.S. Um, but I think that we have to, you know, we have to navigate this, you know, from a cyclical uh, kind of, you know, kind of intermediate return, uh, you know, perspective. Um, and from, from, very, from very long run, right, um, the investment implications um, out of the China and the U.S. relationship, it's uh, it's uh, um, you know will have a bigger impact across all the different areas, right? One thing that uh, that we have talked about that uh, you know it will basically have a kind of more uh, regionalization and the reshoring of the global supply chain, right? And that is inflationary, uh, and 
Uh, at the same time, I think there will be global increase of military spending, and that is inflationary as well. Uh, and uh, I think there will be redundant of the supply chain and also different technology ecosystem. And one ecosystem dominated by Chinese technology company and the other ecosystem dominated by the U.S. technology firm, right? Um, and uh, that is also inflationary. Uh, obviously, it will have an impact uh, kind of the market shares of uh, whatever technology company that you're talking about in terms of the global market shares. Um, and then the competition in the technology advancement uh, in, you know, will drive the capital expenditure, uh, such as in, you know, in, in the high tech, you know, sectors um, that will foster innovation and it will improve the productivity. So that that's actually the good thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one day that China probably will, um, you know, flood the market again with very cheap uh, electric cars, you know, kind of semiconductors and et cetera, right? So that will exacerbate the boom and bust of the capital uh, kind of expenditure uh, cycle. Um, so those are the long-term things and, uh, we, you know, not, not kind of tradable, uh, you know, for the near term, but uh, but that will present a lot of opportunities on both on the from the long side and the short side. Uh, and uh, I think, um, you know, you cannot just categorize them as good and bad and uh, rather uh, figure out what's the impact and, uh, and take advantage of them. Right. Yes. Well, that, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, but what you talked about right now was was kind of the confluence between geopolitics and geoeconomics almost, where, where there is some amount of rationality on, on, on everyone's part. But there are also... Um, more localized and perhaps more volatile causes that could create crises. So I think everyone agrees that there's a risk of a sudden spike of oil prices um, and a prolonged disruption of the supply chain, given what is happening in the Middle East, more specifically around the Red Sea, where the greater powers may or may not have very much control. We, we don't really know. And many argue that these are some of the key risk factors that may prompt inflation to rebound for some time. And as a result, the Fed will be forced to keep interest rates higher for longer, even longer. If this were to come to pass, wouldn't this be bearish for treasury securities? And, and uh, what would be the impact on other risk assets? Uh, yes, Henrik, I just realized I did not answer your question in terms of risk, you know, kind of the risk of high inflation, kind of what what does that impose? Uh, yeah. You know, what the risk that impose on the um, on our view? So I, I will talk about that, you know, all at the same time. So, you know, like, like, like we talked about, we are the students of market cycle. So we follow that and typically the inflation goes higher out of recession, right? Uh, and uh, um, towards the end of the towards the end of the uh, economic cycles, right, high inflation together with the tighter monetary policy result in the in the end of the market cycle. So that that's typically um, you know uh, kind of uh, how things happen. And if you look at oil price, and typically they go higher uh, out of recession, right, and uh, and the, towards the end of the cycle, the oil price have a loss, kind of a rally. Uh, and that that you know together with the the you know the Fed uh, tightening and actually that result in the uh, 
in the in the market downturn and then commodity price you know start to go down right so so i think that inflation you know when we talk about inflation we really need to think about what is driving the inflation so inflation can be driven by you know the supply side and demand side right so typically the inflation uh, will pick up uh, at the beginning of the you know out of recession and is driven by demand right uh, and uh, and I would say the the recent inflation that we have uh, we have seen out of a pandemic is driven by both right demand was supported and uh, by the uh, by the by the by the stimulus right and then supply on the side there was a lot of constraints so if it is from the demand side then that is a good inflation right and if it's from the supply side that is a bad inflation. So, so I think that uh, at this point of time, uh, it's very hard for me to see from the demand side, the pickup of the demand. In other words, acceleration of the demand to push up the inflation prices, okay? And we talk about, you know, the, the, the retail sales have been coming down. We talk about, you know, in, in order for, for the demand to pick up, right? You, you know, the, 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 you know, the people spending power in need to increase. And typically you need more employment, right? And that with a record uh, kind of a low unemployment, it's hard to see how much the labor market can expand, right? And secondly, you need to kind of a wage growth acceleration, right? I think the wage growth is kind of a stabilizing here. Um, and then you also need to see that uh, that uh, people start to borrowing because the you know you know it's cheap to borrow and uh, actually borrowing costs is very hard, right? Um, so. The only thing that uh, that is kind of on a marginal, you know, kind of uh, spending is really the elevated of the, the of the of the stock price, which typically help. But we know that the people who own the financial asset have less propensity to spend, right? So I think if you put all these puzzles together, I do not see the significant kind of the risk from the demand side to push up the inflation. Now, if the if the if we do see there will be there could be kind of a risk. Uh, of inflation from the supply side, which you you rightly pointed out about, for example, the shock of the oil prices, right? Uh, increase of the commodity prices or disrupt of the of the supply chain, and uh, and I think there is a lot of news about what happening in the Red Sea, uh, and also the um, you know kind of a dry weather and the dry up of the water in Panama Canal, and all these things together that they will drive up the the freight rate. And, uh, and the commodity prices. And uh, if that has come from the supply side of the inflation, that is a bad inflation. And the, here is the trouble that it will cause for the consumers because consumers uh, on one, one hand, uh, the, 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 the rising uh, kind of interest rate was, you know, was, was, was kind of a, a hurting um, their, 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 their demand. At the same time, you know, the, uh, the higher oil prices and the higher inflation will, it will force them uh, to cut down uh, spending, uh, spending at the same time, higher inflation, sticky inflation, uh, will you know will result a Fed more hawkish um, than otherwise, right? So that uh, you may you know, and that is basically will keep you know uh, financial con you know monetary conditions tighter. So what's the big picture of this is that you may actually increase the probability of the, you may increase the probability of the recession. Um, and uh, what's the impact for the for the uh, for the treasury securities? I mean, treasury securities love recession, right? So I would say here is that you know the 
the, the short dated race may remain elevated for longer. Um, and the race may relate it, and you may stay at a higher level for longer than you would be expecting. And the curve may flatten further than you would be expecting. Um, but that uh, the probability of the race to fall and the recession to occur actually increase. Um, I think that's kind of a, um, you know, kind of, you know, kind of an interesting uh, kind of dynamic that we have. Okay, um, thank you. So does that make sense like, to you, Eric? Sorry, does that make sense to you? It does. Thank you very much. Um, perhaps I should make some political observations here towards the end of this. Oh yeah, that's 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 right. So you know, you, you may want to share some of your political observations. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the the domestic American political situation could trigger down the road wider geopolitical events this year, um, because there's a distinct probability that the outcome of the presidential election could become, shall we say, contested. And such developments could easily consume the nation and the administration and tempt countries unfriendly to, to the US and the West, collective West, to take destabilizing actions when the US is on the path of self-harm. If and when the US is perceived as being weak and indecisive, it's always the case that the risk for surprises increases. That's one thing. More immediately, perhaps, there is this recent development that we've commented on before in the war in Ukraine that may turn out to be significant over the next quarter or so. Because the Ukrainians over the past few weeks have managed to hit two Russian energy exporting ports, one in the Gulf of Finland and one in the Black Sea, not far from Sochi, and, inf and inflict damage on refineries inland as well as on Russian steel production. Now, the significance of this is that if these strikes are the beginning of a trend of more actively attacking Russian trade and production, Russian exports of both crude and liquid natural gas could become more constrained than they are today. And, and, and this is not because of sanctions, it's because of physical production limitations. So we have now come to the end of the 10th episode of Total Convexity. Before I let you go, Jim, could you please share with us your highest conviction, ideas, trades for the next, let's say, one to six months? Jim? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, we have a talk about the various asset classes and, and, and uh, um, and, and the implications, right, risk reward, and et cetera. So if I have to pick one at this particular moment of time um, as, a, uh, as a trade, and I would say, um, you know, curve uh, steepener for the curve for the U.S., you know, interest rate curve to steepen, I would say that's, um, that's my high, you know, kind of conviction uh, kind of ideas right now. And how do you do it? And then really depending how uh, who you are and uh, what you want to do, right? So I think if uh, if you're hedge funds, right, and uh, a simple thing to do is just long the short of the race and uh, and the short the longer the race, right? And uh, or you can do a uh, do options on the on the curve cap, right? Um, and uh, my favorite expression is is really, I think that if the curve is to to, to you know, steepen and the probably is driven by 
the decline of the short range. I know everyone is uh, agree now that uh, that it will higher for longer. I think that's probably is the time. So you can do a receiver on the short dated options and short dated, uh, you know, kind of race and the sell uh, receivers on the long dated race. So I think that's for, you know, if you are, if you are hedge funds, I think uh, that's probably the way to do it. Um, and if you're long-term as allocators, um, and uh, I would say, you know, because of our views of the, uh, uh, of the, of the risk reward for the short term, you know, interest rate uh, 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 attractive. And also, um, you know, I think that upon uh, the next major risk kind of decline, probably it's going to be driven by the recession if that happens. Uh, I think an interest rate will return to be a mitigator, risk mitigator again. Uh, so you can loan uh, shorter dated uh, kind of uh, interest rate, but that does not give you enough uh, kind of a duration. So you can do a kind of a levered, uh, you know, uh, kind of version of the shorter dated interest rate through futures or through receivers or swaps. Uh, uh, I think, you, you know, that, that that's the way to do it. And if you are, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, retail and et cetera. And I would say just by, you know, short, shorter data, you know, kind of short term, uh, you know, kind of a futures or uh, shorter term uh, tenor. Uh, and uh, then you can optimistically uh, kind of shorter, short and longer dated uh, kind of uh, futures as, uh, uh, you know, to manage the risk uh, of your, of your long uh, kind of exposure. So, so that's how, you know, kind of my view, um, how, you know, how I think about it. Okay, well, thank you. So, yes, you can follow us by searching for Total Convexity in your favorite podcast apps or via YouTube. Please don't forget to click on the subscription button so that you will be notified automatically when a new episode is available. You can also follow us on X, where we have the handle at Total Convexity. You can email us at totalconvexity at gmail.com. Finally, we're available on Substack, totalconvexity.substack.com. We promise never to spam you or to provide any sort of advertising or marketing. We only give you a... Okay, I think Henrik may have some uh, difficulties. And uh, so we are coming to the end of this podcast. And if you like this podcast, we would appreciate it if you can pass along to anyone who may be interested. And uh, this concludes the episode 10 of our podcast, Photo Convexity. I'll see you next time. Disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial professional before making any financial decisions. All investments involve risks. There are no guarantees of profits and investments may incur losses. The contents discussed in this podcast is not a recommendation for any specific investment. Past performance does not predict future results. 
The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts or affiliated parties. The podcast host and guests may have financial interest in companies or products discussed, and listeners should be aware that the opinions expressed by guests and their hosts may reflect biases. We strive for accuracy, but financial information can change rapidly. The content may not always be up to date or complete, so verify information independently. This podcast does not offer legal or regulatory advice, and listeners are responsible for ensuring that their financial decisions comply with applicable laws and regulations. Mentions of specific financial products or services do not constitute endorsements. Perform your due diligence before engaging with any financial offering. Listeners are fully responsible for their financial decisions, and the podcast's guests, hosts, and affiliated entities are not liable for any financial losses resulting from actions taken on based on the provided contents.